friend of mine uh, sent me an article. It's, on the whole, it has a lot of merit to it, a lot of merit to it. And I've given you the source. And uh, it actually pertains very much to what we're doing here. But not for the next eight days, or whatever it is we have here, but for all the days afterwards, when we're engaging with people who are not immersed in this worldview and this mode of meditation and way of life and aspirations and so forth. But all of our fellow sentient beings, you know, who are very diverse, but obviously there are a lot of common ideas that we'll find very prevalent in the, in the media, uh, in education, in just society around us, and wherever we are, whether in Singapore, whether in Australia, South America, North America, Europe, and so on. So the article in question is called, very provocatively, Buddhist Meditation and Cognitive Sciences. And I was impressed by the degree of research the writer did. Um, and I've given you the source, so you can read it online. Um, and I'm just going to quote a few things that I think are provocative and warrant a meaningful response. So the article, uh, written by a fellow named da Daniel Simpson, just I want to make sure I didn't mistake that, Daniel Simpson. Yep, Daniel Simpson. Interesting, interesting fellow. I've never met him. He lives in England. But judging by the way he writes and some of his background, sounds quite, sounds quite, I'd, I'd be happy to meet him one day, I hope so. But he writes, regarding the kinds of dialogues that are promoted by the Mind and Life Institute, of which I'm very familiar since its inception, anthropologist Jeff, Jeffrey Samuel comments. Now, Jeffrey Samuel is a very fine scholar of Buddhism. He's done, written a book, Civilized Shamans, very respected. He's an anthropologist by training, but he spent a lot of time studying the spiritual traditions, let's say, of the Himalayan tradition, a Himalayan region. So anthropologist Jeffrey Samuel, highly regarded scholar in this field, comments, and I quote, much of what happens in this process, that is in the minor life co uh, conferences and institutes and so forth, is less a dialogue between equal systems of thought than an assimilation of the more acceptable, in quotation marks, acceptable elements within Tibetan Buddhist thought into an essentially Western context. He said, I think, what he meant very clearly, and that is, it's not simply a meeting of two different cultures as in a, in a sense of parity, and sense of let us learn from each other as equals and challenge and let all of us challenge our own assumptions by the encounter with the other but actually, there's a profound asymmetry here, which has been going on for about 15 years, uh, of much more an assimilation of elements of Tibetan Buddhist thought that are acceptable, that is, are, do not, are not jarring, do not challenge, are not incompatible with an essentially Western context. And the essentially Western context is scientific materialism. So let's have talks with the Dalai Lama and other Buddhist scholars and so forth, um, but let's talk about those areas where we feel comfortable, we as Western scientists. And please don't rattle our cage, because we like the cage. And the cage is in a marvelous piece of writing of science and scientific history called, and I really highly recommend it, it's called Huxley's Church and Maxwell's Demons. It's really outstanding scholarship. I read it like a thriller. And, and the author here, excellent historian of science, shows exactly how it was in the mid to late 19th century, how the metaphysical dogma, because that's what it is, metaphysical dogma of scientific materialism, actually swallowed science. And it was deliberate, it was strategic, and it was a 
genius of marketing and propaganda by a biologist named Tom, uh, by, by the name of uh, Thomas Huxley, Thomas H. Huxley. Very good scientist, brilliant marketing, brilliant propagandist. In one generation, he moved science in Great Britain and then over to North America from being a, a discipline where people could have multiple perspectives, religious and non-religious, and made it basically unacceptable to teach, to practice, or to study science outside of the context of scientific materialism. Breathtaking what one man could do. And he was enormously successful. So, and that's what, we're, that's what we're, to my mind, burdened with. And not only us, but Mind and Life Institute is now carrying that burden. He continues here, one Mind and Life scientist, Richard Davidson, has bent, and this is a quote, has bent over backwards to avoid causing offense while defending materialism. So here's the premier institute that is designed to facilitate dialogue between Buddhism and science, and yet it's now being run for the last 15 years in a way that you never question materialism, which is absolutely from its core incompatible with everything Buddhist. So that's an odd way to have a dialogue. I have to, that's my comment. He comments, he comments, uh, Richard Davidson, this direct quote, certain scientific assumptions, the wording is so interesting here, Certain scientific assumptions are themselves based on well-established principles. So it's an assumption, but it's based on well-established principles. And adding via, via the circumloc circumlocution, some would say, that the depends, dependence of mind on brain is one such assumption that has been subjected to countless empirical tests and each and every one of them has provided support for this general claim that the mind exists only in dependence upon the, upon the brain. I've known Richie for 24 years, and I have to say I'm astonished. I mean, it actually takes my breath away. That the, the dependence of mind on brain, of course, I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of like, duh, I mean, of course, like, if you have brain damage, your mind is damaged. If you drink a lot of alcohol, you get drunk. Nobody needed to show us that. But what he's saying is something much more than that, because, you know, everybody knows that. Who doesn't know if you drink a lot of alcohol, you go, ooh, you know. So, yes, the mind arises independence upon the brain. We've known that for an awful long time. Brain damage, sickness, insanity, dementia, we've known that. But he's going much further than that. He's saying mind as a whole does not exist without dependence upon the brain. The mind is what the brain does. That's the slogan. If you want the sound bite, the mind is what the brain does. And he says that this has been subjected to countless empirical tests, and each and every one of them has provided support for this general claim. I have to say, and I respect Richie as a human being, and he's a lovely man, and he's an ethical man, and this is such bullshit, I can hardly stand it. The, I'm almost less speechless. I sent Richie just a month or two ago a set of PowerPoint slides that I prepared with a lot of care and showed, I think, very effectively, and he never refuted me, that there is, in fact, no scientific theory of the relationship of mind and brain. A scientific theory, unlike a philosophical speculation or religious belief, is one that you can test. There is no scientific theory. Therefore, to say it's been subjected to countless empirical tests it just has not even a shred of truth to it. All of the empirical tests are based on the assumption that 
the mind is just a function of the brain. They never question it. So these are two radically different kind of strategies. Never question the assumption, and now let's proceed with the assumption that the mind is what the brain does. And of course, if you really want to know the, what the, what's happening in the mind, you study its underlying neural mechanisms, because that's what's doing it. One could say, stupid. There are multiple theories. There's panpsychism, advocated by people of you know, very distinguished scientists like Christoph Koch and Julian Tononi. That's one theory. But then there are others like Michael, Michael, what's his name out there in Princeton? Graziano, Graziano Michael Graziano, that says consciousness doesn't exist. That's different. And there's others that say that the mind is equivalent to brain activity. And others say it's an emergent property of brain activity. And others say it's functions of brain activity. None of these agree with each other. And none of them are tested, and none of them are testable. There is not one hypothesis that is even testable, let alone has been tested. And so to say that each and every one of these countless empirical tests has provided support for this general claim is simply a false statement, flamboyantly false. And it ignores all the contrary evidence. There's an outstanding book. Uh, there are many, many such books, but this is maybe the best one. And it's called Irreducible Mind. I've cited it here. Irreducible Mind. And I'm sure it's there. Ah, it's not there. I will put it in. Yeah. I thought I put it in. I don't see it right now. Yeah. Um, and it's written by some psychiatrists at the University of Virginia. It's a big, fat book. It's jam-packed with scientific research, very meticulous, rigorous scientific research, some of it on evidence for past life experiences, children recalling past life, very rigorous. Others for experience after death, others for a wide variety of phenomena. And time and time and again showing that there are dimensions of consciousness that are operative independent of brain activity. And it's, it's been going on for decades and it's outstanding research. And you can check it on Amazon. It's very easy to find. Irreducible Mind by Kelly, Edward Kelly, and Emily, his wife. I presume his wife. I don't know that. Um, big book. I have a copy. It's outstanding. And it's not just a chronicle of a whole bunch of research. It's then contextualized within the theory that is radically non-reductionistic, challenges to the very core, the assumptions, and that's what they are of scientific materialism. And... It's gotten excellent reviews, excellent reviews by outstanding scholars and scientists. And there it is. And yet a person of the intelligence and stature, and he travels widely, it would seem that Ricci doesn't even know that book exists. I find that astonishing. Well, there's a close colleague of, of Ricci's. And I'm not picking on Ricci here, because Ricci is speaking for his whole discipline here. If Ricci were kind of an oddball, then I'd be picking on him. And I don't like picking on people. I don't know who they are. I don't even really like picking on Donald Trump, let alone a very fine man like Richard Davidson. He's representing thousands upon thousands and thousands of neuroscientists, cognitive psychologists, and so forth, who would say, of course, yeah, why are you saying the obvious? Of course we know that. 
The mind is nothing more than function of the brain. There's no contrary evidence. The Chinese gov- com- communist government is desperately trying to protect its populace, that is, protecting themselves. But to protect themselves, they have to protect their population, 1.3 billion people, from learning of ideas, insights, discoveries that might challenge the status quo of their power. And that means shutting down websites and monitoring cell phones and apps and all kinds of stuff. It's desperate. Can you imagine what an awful job that would be? 1.3 billion people, most of them have cell phones, and prevent them from getting access about the Dalai Lama, for example. Prevent them from getting access to any authentic information about Tibet. And so ask almost any Chinese, educated people, what's the history of Tibet? They will say almost uniformly, Tibet's always been a part of China. There's no evidence to the contrary. We all know that. They've been very successful. Anybody who's not within this zone of silence knows perfectly well that's complete bullshit. There's enormous evidence that Tibet was an anonymous country for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And China was just bigger and gobbled it up because they could. And then rewrote history, you know. But if you're a Chinese person, educated, well-intended, quite possibly very ethical, good person, you'll have not a clue about that. And you will be, you'll be quite well informed that the Dalai Lama is a wolf in sheep's clothing, pathetically trying to get, gain, you know, gain, regain his kingdom and get back in power at the age of 80 as a monk. And you'll believe it. Well, I really sympathize with the people of China because you know they're under this iron heel of a despotic, totalitarian, and in some respects, very vicious government that's suppressing human rights since its inception and has perpetrated unspeakable genocide on multiple minorities. I sympathize with them. But when the community of cognitive scientists, nobody will kill them or imprison them or torture them if they read something they shouldn't read. And yet they don't. I know a colleague of Richard Davidson, another very fine man and a very fine cognitive psychologist. He wrote an essay that he sent me. And he very casually commented, because he knows something about Buddhism, he has some exposure to Buddhism. And he said, well, of course, the Buddhist theory of reincarnation cannot be tested scientifically. And I, I wrote back to him. I said, I'm coming home, John, John Smith. John, because um, we have a very nice relationship. to John, uh, that's just not true. That is, in the University of Virginia, there are very, very good scientists, rigorous, sophisticated, precise, critical, skeptical. They've been studying, not the Buddhist theory, but reincarnation for 40 years. They come up with a great deal of evidence, carefully screened to throw out, you know, signal and noise, signal and noise, throw out all the noise, all the nonsense, of, you know, other ways that, you know, children could be, you know, pretend to be recalling past life, and they come up with this minority of cases where they've got veridical information, and you just can't see any reasonable way they could possibly have that information, except they're recalling past life. And I said, we have book after book after book by very responsible scientists at a major research university. This has been studied, is being studied, and how is it you don't know this? Because I'm not Sherlock Holmes. You know, I'm just interested and I think I told him something he never heard before. You know. Well, I asked Jim Tucker, that is, Ian Stevenson was the man who really started this, and he was the head of, the, head of psychiatry at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. You don't get there by being a flake, right? And in that position, he started this rigorous research 
on alleged accounts of children, or accounts of children allegedly recalling past life. And he went about it with no religious beliefs in about it, just curious, which is supposed to be a good thing scientifically. Came out with book and then waited 20 minutes, 20 years, came out with another book, and then he passed away eventually. Jim Tucker's come out with one book, two books, maybe it's three books now. And I asked Jim Tucker about a month, just a few months ago, because I've met him and we have, you know, professional relationship. And I said, Jim, in all these 40 years of all the research you've published, including a lot of it published in this book, Irreducible Mind, uh, have you ever in 40 years received one open-minded, critical, scientific evaluation of your research? An open-minded critical could shred it. That's what sometimes happens when the research is crappy. You come in with an open-minded critical and you just torch it. You show, this, it's defective here and here and here, and they drew this and this and this. And then you, you, get, you really should get a standing applause for that. If people do crappy research, right? To show them they've done crappy research is actually a service. And if they've done great research, then applaud them and say, well, well done. Or if they've done sometimes good, sometimes bad, then show where the strengths are, where the limitations are. So that's scientific evaluation of research, right? That's, that's what it's done. And I asked Jim Tucker, in 40, you know the answer already. In 40 years of publishing book after book, research after research paper, have you ever received a fear, open-minded, critical scientific evaluation of any of your research? He said, never. Not once. I find that very, very, very sad. Because I love science, and I know so many good scientists. And they will say that all the evidence points to affirming their view by ignoring, ignoring deliberately any evidence to the contrary. And then passing it around, it's almost like a, a zone of silence, but it's like mutually agreed upon self-hypnosis. We will all persuade ourselves that what we believe is scientifically validated, and yet show me the test, I dare, I dare ask anybody, show me the test where they've taken a scientific theory that equated mind with brain function, put it to a test, could be verified or repudiated, and they, rep and they verified it. Show me the test. And I can tell you already, it's never happened. They just assume that from the beginning, and then, of course, all the conclusions are based upon that. It's like I've been saying all along with cosmology. Ask a physical question, you're going to get a physical answer. So don't tell us when you've written your book on cosmology, see, there was no evidence for anything non-physical in the universe. I mean, really, that's just flat-out stupid. And scientists shouldn't be stupid. Their tradition is glorious. But to pretend as if that's a conclusion when you never get any, gave any contrary conclusion any chance to begin with, because all your questions were physical. That's just absurd. That's such pseudoscience that it makes one weep for the scientific community that, that stoops so low. And here it is specifically in the cognitive sciences. To make this statement as if this assumption has been subjected to countless empirical tests and each and every one of them has provided support for this general claim, then you don't call it an assumption. You call it a scientific fact, but he has enough candor to say it's an assumption, but then he contradicts his own statement by saying no contrary evidence and every single study has shown it's true. Then why not just say it's true, but he, he knows it's an assumption, which means it's never been scientifically demonstrated, and they shield themselves willfully from every, any contrary evidence. And they do that systematically, institutionally, and if you deviate from that, you will be punished. You will be punished. 
First of all, you'll be ignored, as Jim Tucker and all of his colleagues have been. If they deign to acknowledge that you exist, the next line of defense is ridicule. And that pretty much finishes you. Because if you're ridiculed within the scientific community, you lose your reputation. You lose your influence and you lose your funding. If you lose your funding, your ability to research now is finished. Because no, no research is free. And if you're trying for tenure, you won't get it. If you're trying to get a job, you won't get it. And if you're trying to finish your PhD, you won't get that either. They find a way to terrify the whole community. And they're living in a, an, in a, an institutional context of fear. I asked when I sent Richie these PowerPoint slides, just showing, here it is. I mean, there's just no evidence for any of these theories that they put together. Panpsychism, emergence, equivalence, consciousness doesn't exist. I just show one by one. I mean, it's not that hard. No evidence, no evidence, no evidence. Just belief, just belief, just belief. And I said, Richie, you know, why not hold a Mind and Life conference on this? And oh, by the way, there's lots of evidence for reincarnation from Buddhists, from Hindus, from Taoists, from early Christians, from Sufis, from Kabbalah, and from the shamanic traditions all over the world. And it's going on for, and let, let alone Pythagoras and Socrates and Plato. You know, there is evidence out there. And I said, why not? And he said, oh, that would be stepping onto a minefield. Mm. <laughs> I say that with respect. There's a real problem in science. See, I'm not in the scientific community. I really have nothing to fear. If they all ignore me, well, they're doing a pretty good job of that anyway, so that's, that doesn't hurt. <laughs> and if they ridicule me, you know, I'm 66 years old. What do you want me to do? Pull out my teeth? <laughs> really? I mean, what do I have to fear from you? They're, you know, they're not... They're not Gestapo. They're not the secret police in communist China. I'm not really fearing for my life. I don't have to have a bodyguard. Because they're not that bad. You know, they just ignore me and laugh at me if you like. But mostly just ignore. That's okay. I can... I, the more they ignore me, the more time, time, time I have for retreat. So no skin off my nose. But if I were a scientist, this is no laughing matter at all. No laughing matter at all. You lose reputation. You've just become a non-entity. Keep your reputation, gain a reputation, increase your reputation, increase your funding, find avenues to let the millions flow in, and get in positions of more and more influence, appear, get, get quoted in Time Magazine, Scientific American, National Academy of Science, and so forth, then you really have some influence. So I think Richie is doing something in a way very smart. I want to be as charitable as I possibly can, while thinking, feeling, and I mean, being a strong conviction, he's profoundly wrong here. But as a neuroscientist, even to study meditation at all, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, oh, you are out on the edge. They say, you're on the edge, buster. You know, really, his, his community, his, his society for neuroscience, they say, look out, you're on the edge. You're studying meditation. Look out. And Richard Davidson and others, Cliff Saron and others, they went out on that edge. They were brave to even study meditation. You're flirting with the devil there, you know. And so I think his motivation, I think, is really quite wonderful. He's such a fine man. And I think he's trying to preserve the integrity of the Mind and Life Institute in the face of the establishment. The establishment of the academia in general, the Society for Neuroscience, the American Psychological Association, and those institutions are absolutely committed, without question, to scientific materialism. And so he has done so. He's done a very good job that Mind and Life Institute has uh, really some reputation, some integrity, some clout, some influence within the scientific community because they have not, precisely because they have not, challenged.
scientific materialism. So I see, I think, in some ways it's been very effective, very skillful means. In other ways, so tragically misleading. There's another person who's been involved in my life. He's, he's another one of these adventuresome souls, I have to say. Really, he's a very fine philosopher. His name is Jay Garfield. A very established analytical philosopher at a prestigious uh, private college. But he's done something, again, like Richie has really gone out there on the edge to even study meditation, to meet with the Dalai Lama, to go to India. For many people, the really hardcore conservatives say, oh man, look out for him. You know, He's already out there. Well, Jay Garfield, very fine philosopher, very, I know, I've known him for some years now, he studied Madhyamaka philosophy. You know, oh, hardly any philosopher would touch that with a 10-foot pole. Of those non-Westerners, those woolly-minded Indians, you know, who don't even know Aristotle and Plato, don't know, why are you studying them? I mean, they're religious, for God's sake. They believe in reincarnation, you know. And Jay has done so. He studied Tibetan. He spent years studying in India. And he's done some very good translations of Madhyamaka literature. He says in this article, our introspective awareness of our cognitive processes, no matter how sophisticated, this introspective awareness, so just what you've been doing, right, is as constructed and hence as fallible as any other perception. So reported experiences of pure consciousness may be illusory. And again, in quotation, perception we learn from empirical research is never immediate, never devoid of inferential processes. It is guided by attention and pretension, mediated by memory and low-level inference. And the author of this article said, well, that pretty much undermines Alan Wallace's whole shtick of contemplative science. And if that's true, then the, the author of the article is quite right. That if, what that, if that's it, if that's whole truth and nothing but the truth, uh, that introspection is just by nature flawed. It's just by nature flawed. It's always conceptual. That's what he just said. Right? It's always conceptual. It's always filtered. But that means that all of the scholars and all of the contemplatives from whom we've been learning in this, they're all wrong. Jay Garnfield's right. And all of, the Buddha himself is wrong. The whole Theravada tradition is wrong. All of Indian Buddhism and Zen and Chan and all, all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, they're all wrong. But let's go, let's go supernova here. Aldous Huxley has written a wonderful book I read 45 years ago called Perennial Philosophy showing how the great contemplative traditions really seem to be converging in upon a common reality that's ineffable, inconceivable, beyond all conceptual frameworks. Right? We find it in Christianity, it's in the Kabbalah, it's in Taoism, it's in Advaita Vedanta, it's in all schools of Buddhism. And he's saying there's profound convergence here, and this is the perennial philosophy. This is the highest of all knowing. Uh, no, they're all wrong. J. Carfield's right. It's either J. Carfield's right, or they're all wrong. Now, Jay Garfield is simply speaking for his whole community. Again, I'm not, I'm not interested in picking on him. He's, he's been very adventuresome. He's been courageous to study Madhyamak at all, because he will be ridiculed by that, no doubt. Right. And yet, for all the time he spent with Tibetans, he's never taken any of their claims seriously. That this is what we're meditating for, is to transcend the limit, limitations of the conceptual mind, to transcend our anthropocentricity as we seek to view reality as it is and plumb the very depths of the mind right down to its ground. And what's the base of this empirical research? 
because we need to have a response to this. This is an intelligent man, and he's making a statement that, as far as he's concerned, is very well thought out and thoroughly based on empirical research. But I have a very simple question. We learn from empirical research. Who are your subjects? Who were your subjects of your empirical research? I can tell you, it's no mystery. Ordinary people, people with brain disease, people who are, who are pathological cases. Ordinary brain disease pathology. And meditators who meditate 20 minutes a day. Long-term meditators, the term is used, long-term meditators meditate 20 or 30 minutes a day for years. They're long-term meditators. They're the serious ones. How long have you been meditating? 20 years. How many? Well, when I can get to it, I try to get to it every day. You know, Except when I'm busy. How long? Oh, a good day, an hour. That's a long-term meditator. That's who they study. On the basis of that, all the subjects they studied, that's true. And now we just extrapolate, well, these Taoist and Christian and Buddhist and Hindu and so forth, the yogis who spend 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years in retreat, they don't achieve anything that people who meditate only 20 minutes a day, they don't achieve anything. They claim they do, but they don't because they don't know the empirical research we've done on ordinary people. And of course, why should we believe they're unordinary just because they say so? So it's wildly ethnocentric, tragically, pathologically ethnocentric. And it's normal, it's widely accepted in philosophy of mind, in psychology, it's everywhere. They're taking their limitations and universalizing for all of humanity, and thereby blowing out the light, snuffing out the light of contemplative insights throughout millennia. That is the culmination of the path of liberation, and they blow out the light. I think from very sad. In the same article, we're almost finished here, neuroscientist Jonathan Cohen, I met him. He's one of the leading neuroscientists in the whole country, and he was at a minor life meeting we, we, organ, we, held, we held at MIT in the year 2003. And I have a very soft spot in my heart for Jonathan Cohen, because we got to know each other. I really liked him a lot. Uh, and he taught me how to use PowerPoint. <laughs> I didn't know what PowerPoint was. And so he taught me. He, got, he gave me oral transmission. And I've been using it ever since. I was never a good student, so if anybody see my PowerPoint, you're kind of like, you're, you're in kindergarten, right? Well, yeah, but he taught me, so I'm very indebted to him. And, uh, but he's like, I think his laboratory there at Princeton, I think is a $100 million laboratory. He's really one of the creme de la creme of neuroscientists in North America. And he says in this article, neuroscientists want to preserve both the substance and the image <laughs> of rigor. <laughs> We want to preserve both the substance and image of rigor in their research, he explains. So, one doesn't want to be seen as whisking out into the la-la land of studying consciousness. That is a direct quote. That if you even study consciousness in any fashion whatsoever, you've just been whisked off to la-la land. As you might know, I'm the president and founder of the Santa Barbara Institute for La La Land. And I, I've heard this term many times. I thought it kind of referred to Los Angeles. Um, but I checked it out, you know, because I'm being such a rigorous scholar. And I found the definition of La La Land. It's, on, it's online. You can find it. And here it is. You know when you see someone and think, wow, they're in a world for their own. They're in their own world. Wow, they're in their own world. 
Well, that world is la-la land. <laughs> you are in the center of your mandala. <laughs> you are in your la-la land, and I've been guiding you there all the way. <laughs> and I'm in la-la land. And it is inspired by Los Angeles with Hollywood and all of that. And I was born in the vicinity of La La Land. <laughs> and so I was born there, raised there, and I'm frolicking in La La Land all the time because I'm devoting my whole life to studying consciousness. And clearly I've been whisked away. So he's basically, as one of the premier, most influential scientists in the country, is this is, if that's not a warning sign, I don't know what is. Don't study consciousness. We can't define it. We can't measure it. We don't know what it is. We don't know what causes it. We don't know how it interfaces with the brain. We just can't make any sense of it at all. Within, of course, a materialistic paradigm. And that's the only paradigm we're even willing to talk about. So therefore, since we can't make any sense of it in our paradigm, if you study it, we're going to say you've been whisked off to La La Land and be prepared to reap the consequences. Francisco Varela told me 20 years ago, this is the 1990s, as a, as a again, world-class neuroscientist, he said, in my field, you can't even talk about consciousness, not in the laboratory. You cannot use, do not use the word C, the C word. Don't talk about it, don't refer to it, make no reference whatsoever. If you have to talk about it, it's over T. Off the record, really, like off the record. Nobody's listening, nobody's recording. What do you think about consciousness? You don't, you, you don't know either, huh? Yeah, me neither. But on the record, we go right back to Richard Davidson's statement, statement. Well, each and every one of the scientific studies has supported the claim that consciousness is simply a function of the brain. So where does that leave us? I invite you to read the article. It's, it has many strong points, and I think some very weak, but that's just my evaluation. But here we are so much strong, so strongly emphasizing the first person, but not just the first person, but refining, increasing, making more sophisticated, more precise, something that apparently Jay Garfield, for all of his 20 years or so of a lot of contact with Tibetans, it doesn't seem like it even raises the issue that, you know, can our introspective abilities be refined? Can they be less encumbered? by conceptualization, by cognitive bias, by cognitive hyperactivity and cognitive deficit. Don't even raise it. Well, there's a long history behind this. For the whole 20th century, with this enormous increase in knowledge of the, of the mind and brain by way of cognitive psychologists and neuroscientists and so on, they didn't study the plasticity of attention for a hundred years. The simple question, can attention be trained? They didn't study it. It's the most important thing about attention there is, and they didn't even bother to study it. They simply assumed it couldn't be studied, it could not be trained, and they, of course, they had a, a biological explanation. All of our cognitive abilities come through natural selection, and it's not to our biological advantage to be able to go into very deep concentration because we could be oblivious of the saber-toothed tiger that's about to eat us. And therefore, it is disadvantageous to develop deep samadhi. Therefore, we can't do it Therefore, nobody can do it. Therefore, we don't need to study it. Because we already know the answer to the question before we even pose it. Therefore, we won't pose it. Attention can't be trained. And that was the reasoning, and it worked for 100 years until the beginning of this century when they found that people trained, training their attention for 20 minutes a day for six weeks, they can develop their attention. It wasn't exactly brain science. Pardon the irony. 
But there's an underlying assumption here, and that is that just the first-person perspective is so fundamentally flawed, it's hopeless. And in the year 2009, I worked with a... Actually, I conceived of the, the idea for a minor life meeting. It was accepted by the board. And then I invited a very fine cognitive psychologist from the University of Michigan. So the two of us together put together a five-day meeting in Dharmasala. And one of the very fine scientists invited to this meeting was the Princeton psychologist Anne Treisman, world-class. And her area of specialization for like 40 years is attention. Attention. Michael Posner at the University of Oregon. She at Princeton, like the two pillars, the, two, the, the great man, the great dam, the grand dam of scientific study of attention for like 40 years. And so she spoke. And she told, she, in her, and she had like two hours to speak, so she gave her, discussed a wide variety of kind of studies they'd done. Never ever raised the issue of whether attention could be trained. Never came up. Forty years of research never even came up. But she commented in this, and this is a very close paraphrase. I was there. I helped organize organize the conference. And And she commented that perception is a kind of externally guided hallucination. So when you're looking at you know at anything, it's an externally guided. That is, photons are coming in, sound waves are coming in, and what you're experiencing is a hallucination. In other words, basically you're under dadura all the time, right? Well, we've heard we just finished the meditation, right? View all phenomena as being like illusions. So in a way, you say, oh, really? You're kind of Buddhist here, huh? Um, no, actually, no. Uh, but so far, it sounds like, well, this is a deep parallel. Well, we believe everything is illusory, too. You do, too? Cool. Uh, she says, we create experience rather than photographing it. Cool. That's very true. But now, consequently, what do you, what do you conclude from this? So psychologists regard subjective reports as data rather than as factual accounts. So whenever you interview anybody, they're a subject in your study. They will, you might ask them, what are you experiencing? What's your perception? What's your feeling, your emotion, your desire? And they will respond. They're getting paid $10 an hour. They're going to respond. And you don't take literally anything they say. You so profoundly distrust their perspective that you lend credence to nothing that they say. We regard their, their subjective reports as data. It's a factual statement that, that at 3.15 the subject said this. But we will not even ask about whether their first-person report was valid. It's so fundamentally not to be trusted that we won't even consider trusting it. We won't even consider that the first-person perspective might be reliable. Except our first-person perspective. We're the exception. So don't rely upon your experience, because you're schmucks. You're not even scientists. But we psychologists, our person perspective, I should say our third person perspective, there's more of us, there's at least three. Our perspective is valid because our first perspective is the sacred cow. That's not to be, not to be challenged. No reference here to the possibility of gaining insight into the nature of the illusion. No possibility, not even the prospect raised of whether your introspective modes of inquiry might be refined, refined, made more rigorous, more replicable, more intersubjectively subject to validation or repudiation. It doesn't even come up. The question doesn't come up at all. 
you're just intrinsically screwed. And the only people who really know what's going on are the scientists. It's very reminiscent of the role of the Roman Catholic Church in the 17th century, the 16th century, 15th century. Whatever experiences you have, take it to the priest first, and the priest will tell you, if you've had some mystical experience, any kind of unusual experience, don't trust it, because it may very well be the devil, because this is right in the middle of the witch-hunting craze. You may be demon-possessed. If you have any special abilities, you're probably demon-possessed. You probably don't want to talk about it, certainly not to us, because we know what to do with people like you. If you have any kind of unusual experience at all, don't trust it, take it to us, and we will tell you you're either a saint or you're really screwed, because we and we alone, we the Church, have the one valid perspective. And don't you forget it. If you do forget it, we have something called the Inquisition, and you really don't want to know much more about it. And they have no qualms about torturing people, torching people, imprisoning people, excommunicating people. That's even worse. You're in hell forever. And so Galileo comes along into the mix of that, early 17th century. And he's challenging the church, challenging beliefs that had been there for centuries upon centuries and had been verified by multiple experiments, assumptions for which there was no contrary evidence ever, and that is that the earth is in the center of the universe. It's in the Bible, and it's in Aristotle, and that should pretty well seal it. And there's no evidence to the contrary, and we've run many, many studies of this, and it's all come to the same conclusion. Our assumption is unquestionably true. Right? Galileo didn't believe it, but then he got out his telescope. Got out his telescope. And all the debates going back and forth. Is the mind an emergent property of the brain? Does the mind even exist? Blah, 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 blah. Does, do human beings have free will or does not? How does, how does the placebo effect work? Does it even exist? Maybe it doesn't exist. How does it work? Shouldn't it exist? Stop asking the question. It's exactly that type of discourse. With 250 definitions of consciousness now among you know, the cognitive scientists. 250. That's about 249 more than you need. Which means really all of them are about the equally valuable, which is nothing. This is exactly what was occurring at the time of Galileo. So Galileo took his telescope, refined it, and then made observations nobody had ever made before. right? But I checked up on this, because I've known it for years, but I wanted to say something that was firm, not just speculation, hearsay. I had heard, I'd heard for years, that among Galileo's peers, as he would be looking through his telescope and seeing that Jupiter has moons, the, Earth, the, the moon has craters, the sun has spots, all these, you know, Observations that completely shredded one assertion after another by Aristotle, who was considered to be infallible. Uh, I'd heard that there were people that just, when they heard what he was observing, wouldn't look. They would not look through the telescope. You know? And so I, I just wondered, I said, check, check, checked it out this morning. Was that true or is that just myth? Because sometimes stuff you hear, you know, you just hearsay. Well, it turned out it's true. And this is interesting, so we'll stay on this a bit a lot longer. Cesare Cremonini. Cesare Cremonini. Cremonini? Cremonini. Cesare Cremonini. Cesare. 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 Thank you. Thank goodness. <laughs> was a friend of Galileo and among his contemporaries who refused to look through a telescope to confirm or refute Galileo's discoveries. So he's a friend, but he still wouldn't look. 
Why? He explained, Cesare Cremonini, explained his refusal with the words, and this is a quote, I do not wish to approve of claims about which I do not have any knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Exit Cremonini, insert J. Garfield. Insert Richard Davidson. Insert John Cohen. I do not wish to approve of claims by the Dalai Lama himself that he can recall his past lives. Claims of countless Tibetan yogis, a number of whom they've met, who have seen cities and remember past lives and so forth. So I do not wish to approve about claims about which I do not have any knowledge. If I don't know it, you don't know it. About things which I have not seen. And then to observe through those glasses gives me a headache. (laughs) Basta. Enough. It has to be basta. My favorite word in the Italian language. Basta. It gives me a headache to look through your, excuse me, your fucking telescope. It gives me a headache. Basta. I do not want to hear anything more about this. He just spoke for the whole neuroscientific community and the entire, all of academia when it comes from claims from anybody outside of academia, like Hindus, Buddhists, Taoists, Christians, Sufis, and so forth, don't want to hear about it. You're making claims about which I don't know, I don't understand, and I don't want to look. And therefore, I will not look through your telescope. Because it's a headache. Basta. And stop talking about it, goddammit. That's what he said. That was my quotation mark. So I participated in multiple scientific research projects and meditation, and the remarkable thing is none of the scientists I've collaborated with meditate. While showing the benefits of meditation, they don't meditate. They won't look through the telescope. Let alone come to an eight-week retreat. My God, they're too busy for that. Or, and it doesn't, it's not about me, anybody. Maybe a 10-day retreat, mindfulness meditation. That's about, you know, baby food is about all they can take. So Cremonini was paid to teach Aristotle. In fact, he said when under investigation by the Inquisition that he would have to return his pay if he declined to teach Aristotelianism. In other words, his job depends on it. If he should look the telescope and be honest, he'd lose his job. If neuroscientists should start meditating seriously and look and then report on what they find, they'll lose their jobs. They will be excommunicated. The Inquisition is called the National Academy of Science. More generally, the heavens in Aristotle were supposed to be incorruptible, and hence there are no sunspots. So why look through a telescope? They mustn't be there. They shouldn't be there. Therefore, they aren't there. doesn't matter how many people see them, especially if they're from a non-Italian culture. Cremonini's reasons were thus philosophical and ruled out Galileo's observations a priori, so there was no need for telescopes. As for the whole scientific community, there's no need for meditation if you want to understand the nature of the mind. The last thing you need to do in understanding the nature of mind is look at it. There was one other person, then we'll finish. Giulio Libri. Okay? Giulio Libri. Libri, L-I-B-R-I. Libri. Giulio Libri. 
was an opponent of Galileo. So we have one as a friend, refused to look on ideological grounds. It shouldn't be there, it mustn't be there, therefore I won't look, because if I saw it, then I'd be screwed. Giulio Libri was an opponent of Galileo who refused to look through a telescope, but his reasons appear to have been more practical. In his book Natural Magic of 1589, Giovanni Battista della Porta had shown that all manner of optical illusions were possible. And at the time of Galileo, no complete theory of optics was available to distinguish between genuine effects and tricks or self-deception, signal noise. And so maybe, even if the telescope is fine, what he's seeing is an optical illusion. And therefore, since that certainly could be the case, let's assume it is the case, and therefore let's not look. What people perceive in meditation could be an optical illusion. It could be simply a construct of their own imagination. It could be, it might be, we can't say that it isn't, so let's not look. We are now in the medieval period, the dark ages in the scientific study of the mind. William James comments here, introspection is difficult and fallible. And the difficulty is simply that of all observation of whatever kind. The only safeguard to the difficulties, the fallibility, the possibility of making error, the only safeguard is in the final consensus of our farther knowledge, our later knowledge about the thing in question, later views correcting earlier ones, until at last the harmony of a consistent system is reached. He's saying the scientific study of the mind should be driven by introspection, as in all other branches of science. Be willing to make mistakes, and then keep on looking with greater and greater precision, and let the later observations correct the earlier ones until you come to greater and greater consensus. But the scientific establishment says, no, we have a better solution. Don't look at all. And only observe brain and behavior, and interview people, but don't believe anything they say. Just believe they said it. So William James concludes here, psychology indeed is today hardly more than what physics was before Galileo, what chemistry was before Lavoisier. It is a mass of phenomenological description, gossip, and myth, including, however, real material enough to justify one in the hope that with judgment and goodwill on the part of those interested, its study may be so, may be so organized even now as to become worthy of the name of natural science at a not very distant day. It's now a hundred and twenty-six years, I think, twenty-six years, since he made that statement. We haven't gotten there yet, but it could happen. I'm seeing young scientists who have not bought into the system and the refusal to look at evidence that's uncomfortable and the refusal to ask questions that are heretical. I think the time is getting very ripe. And here in Italy, I say really now with rejoicing, it's a day for mudita after all, I'm finding here, just in the time I've been here, such openness from three scientists at very prestigious institutions. Two of them are, are one is a psychologist, the other one is a Neuroscientists, the other one is world-class, working in the field of virtual reality and showing openness, keen inquiry, very interest. And the University of Pisa, where I'll be speaking next, I think Thursday on the 19th, I said, I'll talk about whatever you like. We'd like I, I didn't quite say, you want something safe? Because I'm not here just to make people unhappy or I don't want to insult anybody. 
Want something safe? How about the four aspects of mental balance? You know, make your day. Or, if you don't want to be safe, how about a radically empirical approach to the study of consciousness? Which just takes the bazooka out to one <laughs> unverified bullshit belief after another. I said, which do you want? And they say, give us a radically empirical approach. That's where I'm going on Thursday. And the fellow I spent 90 minutes in conversation with last Saturday, I think it was last or last before, from the University of Trento. Oh, what a fine scientist. So open. Really open. They have a whole network of different institutions there. And really open. And then I'm going to the Scuola tomorrow. Scuola Superiore Santana. And we'd be brought to the lab. Oh, I wish I could bring everybody with you. I just can't. But it's into a world-class laboratory of virtual reality. And that should be interesting. And this man is so open. I've known him for years. Really open. So there is enough, uh, however, real material enough to justify one in the hope that judgment and goodwill on the part of those interested with open minds. That its study, the scientific study of the mind, open, free of all dogmatic constraints, free of fear, may be so organized even now as to become worthy of the name natural science at a not very distant day. So I wanted to end on a note that's uplifting. But when you come out, I've just given you a pocket full of ammunition. Not to harm anyone, but simply if people throw up bullshit objections. Be merciless. <laughs> merciless. You know, just with reason. And I hope it's been very, very clear. It's been very much my intent. I thought about it a lot, because I, I knew I was going to talk about this. There was no sarcasm, no ridicule, no diminishing at all of these people. I know them personally. They're fine people. They're fine people. But they're under massive institutional constraints. And I just am enormously grateful that I have the freedom not to be in those, and be able to make a living. Because if you're there and you violate those constraints, you've impaired your families, your children. You want to get your children through college? How do you plan on doing that now? You know. So I have great sympathy for them and respect for people like Richard Davidson and Jay Carfield who've already gone out, out on the edge of the herd, you know, even to talk about these things, to research these things. That's very respectable, much more daring than what I do. I'm just a loose cannon. You all know that. Hola, so. Very good.